When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. If you look for it, every day has cause for celebration. Celebrate a friend for their promotion baby wedding life thing. Celebrate yourself for keeping the couch warm. It's no easy feat, especially if it's a big couch. Or maybe you just want to celebrate living in 2023 where you can get beer, wine, and spirits delivered from Drizzly in under 60 minutes without leaving said couch. So download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com and get your favorite drinks delivered today. And now another no-brainer money-saving tip from Progressive. Marcus, what happened? (sighs) I was changing my oil and I spilled some on the floor. Oh, we'll use these $50 bills to wipe it up. Perfect. Got any more? Yeah, yeah, take a couple hundred. Stop. Instead of using money, use an old rag. And here's a better tip from Progressive on how not to waste money. Don't pay too much for car insurance. Drivers who switch and save could save hundreds. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Potential savings will vary. It's warm in here. It's very fucking warm. It's only May. And I don't know how I'm going to deal with this. Oh, because we're going to eventually just be recording in our underwear soon enough. No, that's so uncomfortable and gross. Oh. No. I'll put my pants back on then. (laughs) Fine. You can do whatever you want. I'm wearing pants. All right. Fine. That's fair. That's fair. We at least need to get a fan in here because it's fucking sweltering. Welcome to Rock Candy, where we record in sweltering heats just to bring you guys... Sweet treats of stories and tales from the world of music. We should rename it Hot Rocks. <laughs> it's fucking hot in here. I'm just hot candy. But I just picture like melted Ew. lollipops. Hot candy is not good candy. No. It's just liquid. Oh, gross. Especially chocolate. Ugh. Ugh. No. Okay, no. I don't want that. We're your hosts. I'm Maggie. <laughs> I'm Ashley. And uh, we don't like hot candy. So... We got that going for us. I mean, I don't think anybody likes hot candy. If you like hot candy, please, please write in to us. We'd like to know Ugh. your feelings on hot candy. I don't even know what hot candy would be aside from liquid. Or I mean like a form. fireball. Like the drink? Hate, no, the, the, like, you know, little fireballs. They're little candies. Uh-huh. Yeah, little red ones. Yeah. Yeah. Those are hot. Like, oh. they're hot. I thought you were talking about liquid stuff. I'm like, yeah, th- yeah, those, yeah, those are hot. Those are hot. Yeah. I digress from our discussion of hot candy. Also, I hate fireballs. They're gross. 
Why do uh, I want? Why do I want like spicy while I'm eating candy? Yeah, I never understood the concept behind it, but it's my mom's favorite candy. So moms are weird. Yeah, moms like weird candy. <laughs> you know what else moms like? Moms like the topic that we're going to talk about this week. I don't think. Yep. I, yep. yep. Go okay. with it. Moms love Elliot Smith. They don't. Not I don't Sam think they Smith. Elliot, Elliot Smith. Smith. Elliot Smith, not Sam Smith. Elliot Smith. Because <laughs> uh, we are continuing our discussions on mental health this month. It is mm-hmm. still May. It is still Mental Health Awareness Month. And tonight we will hear the story of Elliot Smith. And, you know, props to you if you know who he is. Yeah. So. Yeah, I feel like, except for Karen Carpenter, maybe Karen Carpenter, because you said some people don't know who she is, which I still don't comprehend that. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, we have covered a lot of obscure artists this month. Yeah, we have. I'm, I'm okay, okay with, with that. that. Whoa, Whoa, Jinx, you owe me a fucking Coke. Not just like a Coke, a fucking Coke. A fucking Coke. All right. Diet Coke, please. I well, don't yeah. like regular. I know you like your Diet Cokes. I do. And to get us through this episode of Sadness and Depression, we also have to drink because how that's, else are we going to deal with our lives? That's That's the only way we get through anything. Yeah, right? But tonight we are drinking from Foreign Objects Beer Company. Willful delusion of false perceptions. Yeah, I think that describes Elliot Smith pretty good. Yeah, I don't know. I full disclosure, I had a real fucking hard time finding a beer for this episode because, of course, I had the perfect beer in my head. But do you think I could find it? No, no. You know and it's then... going to show up on the shelves next week, right? Oh, it one hundred percent is. Yeah. And the I went to two different beer stores, and at the second beer store, I found a good beer, one one that would work. Yeah. Didn't have my ID on me. And the one time, they're like, we're going to ID you. You're like, really? Yeah. Really? Really? This, this was the time? This time, at this beer store, this, this is when you're going to ID me? Cool, bro. Cool. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks, guys. Cool. But uh, yeah, this is a new American hoppy ale. <laughs> I feel like uh, uh, Foreign Objects does a lot of hoppy ales. We, we've researched. They they just do hoppy ales. It's pretty much it. I I'm kind of I'm kind of curious to see if their other ones just taste like this one. Yeah, cause but the cans are so pretty. The cans are very pretty, but it's very hoppy and very intellectual. Is it pinky up uh, uh, descriptions? And fucking names, so fine. I feel like this is a beer for people who really like to boast about drinking yes. IPAs. Yes. This is this is for you. This is for our bros out there and babes who really like to talk about how many IBUs are in their beer. If you really want to impress somebody with a beer, you drink foreign objects. I mean, maybe not us, but yeah, sure. Not, well... For the bougie bitches over there. Yeah. You bougie bitches out in Connecticut. <laughs> Just a shout out to you guys. Again. But uh, but yeah, I mean, it's an adequate beer. It's doing its job. It is. It's being beer. Yeah, it is. It is beer. It is beer. So it's... It's doing its job. You already crossed the finish line. All right. <laughs> With that, let's... uh. Let's not tangent too much. Let's go on into our uh, our topic for the evening. 
Oh, so sorry. Am I tangenting too much for you? Yeah. Yeah. Bring it down. Look, if you don't, if, if, if you are here at like the eight minute, six minute, whatever minute mark this is, you're like, wow, they talk a lot. I mean, we're going to talk about the artists now. Yeah. Oh, right now. So, right now. Right now. But we need so to warm up. With it. Yeah. We warm up. We drink a little bit. We tell you about the fucking beer. We think we're hilarious. Yeah. And then there and you go. our friends like us. Yeah. I mean, like, people do like us. We do have friends. <laughs> I swear to God we do. <laughs> Before we get into it, I probably should cite my sources. Cite your sources, bitch. Cite my sources. Cite your sources. Um, first was a documentary called Heaven Adores You, um, which is all about uh, Elliot Smith's life um, and the cities that he lived in hmm. during his career. And also a book called Torment Saint by William Todd Schultz, which the book itself was really good. Audiobook narration. Not great. Mm, no. All right. You heard kind it here first, of annoying, guys. But whatever. I mean, I should have read it instead of listened to it. That's my that's my problem. Well, I mean, time is not a friend of ours. Mm-mm. We need an extra day just to do all the shit we need to do. But let's get into it. Yeah. Hopefully, we're helping you get through your chores. Hopefully. I mean, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I might just make you sad, but maybe, maybe do not. some house chores while you're listening to this episode. Yeah. So, Elliot Smith is truly one of the most depressing musicians that has ever existed. TBH, full disclosure. Yeah. 100% is. You need a good cry. Or a bad yeah. cry. Either or any one. kind of cry. You... Elliot Smith is going to get you there. All right. There is something about his music that could put the most bubbly of people in bed, curled into the fetal position, and crying over all the feels that they have. Aww. He had some truly horrible demons that drove him to create gorgeously haunting music and at the same time fueled his addictions to alcohol and hard drugs. Oh, no. Yes, it's a heroin episode. Heroin episode. Heroin. We're we cannot glorify heroin. No, we are glorifying it. But no. you know, it's like it's like when you listen to a true crime podcast and they're like, you know, this is a gold star. It's like yeah. you should be like, this is a heroin this star, is a heroin star episode. This is a black tar star episode. Oh, we'll we'll think of a good name for it. We'll, we'll we'll get there. Yeah. He said once that he was the wrong kind of person to be big and famous, and he was absolutely right. Oh. He was never a big fish in a small pond. He was a small fish, content with a small pond, just as long as he had his own little corner to swim in. But he was thrown into the limelight unwillingly anyway, with disastrous consequences. Elliot was actually born Stephen Paul Smith in Omaha, Nebraska on August 6th, 1969. Not August 6th. You 100% said August 6th. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Not a Sith. He is not a Sith. Oh, no. I don't think he's any type of force user. No, no. By the time he was one year old, his parents had split up and he moved to Duncanville, Texas with his mom, Bunny, which hmm. is a fucking adorable name. That is a cute. That's like a real cute, like, 50. Texan lady name. Yeah, yeah. Like, Bunny and Kitty are like Ooh. adorably Texas 50s kind of housewife thing. Yeah. Love it. I'm here for it. Things were great for a while. He was a happy kid that loved music, and Bunny being a music teacher meant it was a big part of their lives. But of course, things always go downhill. No. Bunny remarried when Elliot was four to a man named Charlie Welch. 
Charlie was not a good person. Oh, cool. Charlie did some pretty traumatic things to Elliot that had a major and lasting effect on him. Oh, like not being good to your kid that might screw with them? Yeah. Huh. I don't really know any specifics because Elliot never really got into specifics with anybody. Oh, shit. It was so traumatic that he couldn't talk about it to anybody. He Oof. he kind of would get into it a little bit with his friends, but he never... He, he let them know that he was abused, oh. but never said how. So people kind of had educated guesses about it. I'm pretty sure there was some heavy emotional abuse mm-hmm. that occurred when Bunny was at home. And there also could have been some sexual abuse, too. <gasps> oh, no. In one of his songs called Some Song, Elliot even outright says, Charlie beat you up week after week. And when you grow up, you're going to be a freak. Oh. So based on some of his music lyrics, you it's can... it's pretty Im- much inferred that Charlie beat him and Ugh. and like wrecked him it's emotionally. Fuck it. Hey, hey. Don't fucking do that. Don't do it. Yeah. Don't be a Charlie. You know what? Yeah. Don't be like Charlie. Uh don't beat fucking kids. Don't or, do it. Or emotionally tear them down or tell them yeah. they're worthless and ugly and yeah. all that shit. Yeah, you got don't... problems, maybe don't have kids. Yeah. Yeah. To hide from his familial trauma, Elliot poured himself into learning music. He was very good at piano, winning awards for his original songs by the time he was nine. When he was 10, his dad gave him an acoustic guitar, and he immediately started teaching himself to play songs by ear. Nice. I find learning songs on guitar by ear is, like, incredibly difficult. I can do it on piano, I can do it on saxophone, and maybe it's because I don't know guitar as well, but I can't do it. Yeah. It's in my fucking life. He said he basically would sit down with the radio and, like, tape songs off the radio. Yeah. And would play them back and would try it note by note and be like, try this note. Mm, Nope, that's not it. Try the next note. Mm, No, that's not it. Try the next note. Oh, okay. Got it. Yeah. Yeah, See, that's what I would do with piano. Yeah. Kudos to him. I find that that's really difficult. And at age nine. And at age nine. Yeah. Yeah. At age 14, Elliot started his first band with his friend whose name was Pickle. What? So cute. That's so Texan. Pickle. (laughs) Pickle was his nickname because his actual name was um, Stephen Pickering. So they just called him Pickle. It was great exposure, but the band didn't last. Elliot was done with Charlie and done with Texas. He moved to Portland, Oregon to live with his dad, Gary Smith, and his stepmother, Marta Greenwald. He immediately fell in love with Portland. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. Yeah. This was a place that would become his home. And with the exception of one or two summertime visits, he never went back to Texas. Good for him. Fuck Texas. I mean, because of Charlie. Yeah. Texas is a fine state. But Charlie is garbage. You kind of have to rule out an entire state based on the trauma you experience there. Fully understand. Yeah. Yeah. I get that. He attended Lincoln High School, and here he met Tony Lash. They met through a mutual friend and immediately bonded over a mutual love of Rush. Fuck. Yes. (laughs) Rush. That is exactly... The right answer. Yes, that is 100%. I I just imagine this being Freaks and Geeks. Oh. It's completely Freaks and Geeks. That's fucking adorable. 
They also played in band together, Tony on the flute and Ellie on clarinet. Oh my god, I love Woodwind Boys. Like, <laughs> Oh, they should have started that the band woodwind called boys. the Woodwind Boys. I mean, like, honestly, I love a boy on clarinet and a guy who's, like, not afraid to play the flute. Yeah, yep. Because, like, yeah. We most- didn't have that at my school. It was, flute was girls only. We did have one boy. We had, two bo- we had two boys play clarinet. Maybe three. Actually, I think we had three guys who played clarinet. I don't think we even had that many flautists, so. Flautists. That's what they're called. I know. It's just a funny word. <laughs> it's a good word. It reminds me of flautas, a delicious Mexican dish. Oh, yeah. Tony really helped Elliot come out of his musical shell. He started writing really good songs, playing them in band in a band with Tony called Stranger Than Fiction. Though Elliot's guitar playing was great, he really didn't like his singing voice at first, describing himself as sounding like Joe Strummer with a cold. Oh. And if you listen to his music, yeah, he kind of sounds like Joe I Strummer have to, with I have a to cold. I go back and listen to more because I never caught up on that, but I also wasn't looking for it. Yeah. All right. Various bands formed and disbanded throughout high school, and after graduation, Elliot made some big changes. The first was going to college on the East Coast. He attended Hampshire College in Amherst, Massachusetts, spending much of his time off in the town of Northampton, which is not far from us. I used to go to North... That's where we would go to have fun, because I went to school in North Adams. Yep. NoHo is where you go for fun. Yeah. He didn't have fun there. <laughs> no, nah, no. It's, it's, first of all, you're in Massachusetts. And this was a while ago. Yeah. yeah. that. Ugh. Yeah. The second was changing his name from Stephen to Elliot. Yeah. What's that about? He thought Steve was too jockish and Stephen was too nerdy, but Elliot seemed just right. <laughs> Goldilocks. Just right. <laughs> it's the Goldilocks of names. You know what? I'm going to take my name. I'm not using the nicknames. Uh, I'm just going to change my name. Yeah. Completely. completely. <laughs> God damn it. Stop saying the same thing as me. <laughs> but nobody really knows why he chose Elliot. Some say it was because he lived on a street called Elliot Avenue. Oh, okay. So I assume that's probably he the most likely thing. He might have seen that and said, I like the name Elliot. There you go. There you go. But... He fucking hated Northampton during the summer. He described it as a hippie college town when school's in session, Mm -hmm. which is kind of fun. Mm -hmm. But in the summertime, all the redneck scum comes out. Well, townies. Yeah. Then you got the townies. You can ignore the townies when you're overrunning it with college antics. Yeah. Yeah. He would get harassed walking to work, and eventually he had enough of it. So he started going home for summer vacations. Every time he'd go back to Portland, he'd have a new project. One summer it was A Murder of Crows. Another it was Harem Scarum. Oh, bands. Bands. I was like, did he raise A Murder of Crows? That would be fun. Right? He was a warlock <laughs> during oh, the summer. <laughs> that's <laughs> During the summers, he'd moonlight as a warlock. Or just Bran from Game of Thrones. Yeah, he just three-eyed raven at the entire summer. He is the three-eyed raven. Yeah, this makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you know yeah. what? This Actually, makes sense. Whoa. This checks. Yep. Yeah, this totally checks. Weird. He graduated in four years, which seems nearly fucking impossible to do now, with a degree in philosophy and political science. Oh, so he didn't want to do anything with his life. Exactly. Yeah. He went to Northampton for college. No, he doesn't want to do anything with his life. And he went for philosophy and poli-sci. Exactly. You smart, but what you got to do with that degree? Yeah. And I'm not judging. 
Neither of us are judging. Oh, no. Because we both went to school for the arts. I have a pointless degree. My degree means shit. Yep. I can't And even... now I just have $30,000 in debt. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, like, force your kid to go to school and they don't know what they want to do. I mean, my parents didn't force me to go. I just had unreasonable expectations of having to go to college. Well, at least they were yours. <laughs> at least they were my unreasonable expectations. <laughs> I mean, my parents pushed their unreasonable expectations on me. and That's not fair. Yeah. I have my own unreasonable expectations. God damn it. Don't fucking give me yours, too. <laughs> I host a podcast. <laughs> of course I have unreasonable expectations. This is what I'm doing with my life. Yeah. Unreasonable expectations. You think people don't roll their eyes at me at family reunions. Well, they do. Well, I'll show you how much they do. It's a lot. Yeah, it's a lot. By then, he had become good friends with classmate Neil Gust, and together they formed a new band called Heat Miser. But the boys did not want to stay in Northampton any longer, so Elliot went back to Portland with Neil in tow. Oh, that's fun. <laughs> it's a road trip. It's a road trip to Portland. <laughs> After reconnecting with Tony in Portland, they recruited him on drums and Brant Peterson on bass, who was then later replaced by Sam Coombs of the band Quasi, and the official lineup for Heat Miser was solidified. This was the first real indication of what Elliot's music was all about. The songs he wrote for Heat Miser were a, juxta were a juxtaposition of pop melodies with truly melancholic subject matter. The lyrics were depressing, but at least you could sing along to it. Oh, I mean, yeah. Isn't that like basically what emo becomes? Yes. Yeah. He, yeah. He was very much the precursor to emo. Wait, what? when is all this taking place? This is the late 80s. Oh. Actually, I would say this is the early 90s. Because my notes say it's the early 90s. Oh, it was like actually early 90s in yeah, Portland, it was... Oregon, not the 2000s in Portland, Oregon. Yeah, this was like 1991. Back then in the early 90s, Portland wasn't the hipster mecca it is today. But they had like a lot of like that grunge movement and DIY stuff going on, right? They didn't really have as much of the grunge movement going on as Washington did. Right. But um, I, th I felt like I thought... Like, between that and, like, the Riot Girl movement, like, they saw glimpses of it. They did, but they were mostly post-punk. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's basically what He Miser is, is a post-punk band. Ooh. I'm here um, for that. Portland was a small, tight-knit community of what I would call musical misfits. They nice. didn't really belong anywhere else. They weren't really grunge. They weren't metal. They weren't emo. They weren't riot girl but they all came together in portland created a post-punk scene and fiercely supported each other oh that's so, good if anything i would say the scene in portland in the early 90s was post-punk all right i'm i'm totally here for that yeah. though and heat miser was one of the most popular bands in portland and the pacific northwest but post-punk wasn't all elliot wanted to do he had a lot of songs that weren't well suited for heat miser they were darker and more intimate and far more personal. Yeah. It's hard sometimes to be that intimate and personal in a band. In a rock band. Yeah, you don't yeah. really have the freedom that you have when you're solo. His friend Pete Krebs, another Portland musician known for his work in the band Hazel, got Elliot a bunch of jobs doing demolition and construction work. That kind of work doesn't really call for much mental gymnastics. No. So he would write a lot of songs in his head while working. 
After work, he'd go home, record them, and bring them back to work for Pete to listen to. Eventually, all those songs became Elliot's first solo record, Roman Candle, released in 1994. Oh. It was different than anything else he'd been doing. Heat Miser was a post-punk band, and his solo recordings were gentle, pretty, and often described as Simon and Garfunkel-esque, but also with a heavy dose of melancholy. Yeah. 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 It's right. kind of like, hello, darkness, my old friends. But even sadder? Yeah. Like that... That kind of Simon and Garfunkel. And you know what? I'm saying it. Not as annoying. Or Sound of Silence. I'm sorry. That's what it's I called. find Sound of Silence. Eh. I had to sing that song in like eighth grade chorus. Mm. So That's weird. It was a weird choice for a bunch of weird. Graders. I had to sing that song in the fucking theme song to Golden Girls. What kind of crack was your teacher oh, on? The good stuff. Clearly. Jeez. Even if Elliot was singing a sweet melody, there was something in Elliot's voice that was intrinsically sad. It made you feel depressed even if you were pretty happy before. People were kind of taken aback by it, but they also loved it, and he got a great reaction from the Portland scene. Even though the microcosm of the Portland music scene was really into Elliot's music, the music world as a whole wasn't. Mm. 1994 was the height of grunge. Mm -hmm. Kurt Cobain had just passed away only a few months before his album's release, and the coffeehouse sound hadn't really taken hold yet. So people, Yeah, you would have to wait like another 10, 15 years for that. Yeah. So people were still hitting the grunge scene pretty hard. A sad sax sounding dude with an acoustic guitar wasn't exactly what they were looking for. It was a struggle for Elliot's management to get any journalists interested in interviewing him or even get his music played on indie radio stations. 70% of Elliot's record sales that first year after Roman Candle's release were in or around Portland. Oh, okay. I mean, yeah. yeah. That checks. There, he was a star, but no one really cared much outside of the city. I mean, there are plenty of like local musicians that are just like, stars in their own right in the local scene right that's nothing new but when you're trying really hard to gain national attention and to just like wait is everyone not trying really hard (laughs) but i mean when you're on like a record label i think he releases through kill rock stars oh yeah like you that's rough you you want to have some kind just enough exposure to warrant a national tour yeah and it wasn't happening oh especially because heat miser was doing well too So everyone was still doing Heat Miser. Yeah, he's still doing Heat Miser and he's doing his solo thing also, but his solo thing isn't really going anywhere outside of Portland. Yeah. So yeah, while doing his initial solo work, Elliot was still playing in Heat Miser. By 1994, they had released two albums and one EP, and Elliot was poised to release his self-titled second solo album. The band consistently played shows in Portland at legendary venues like Satyricon and La Luna, always drawing great crowds, but it was Elliot's solo career that was really getting noticed in the area, Hmm. and that started creating tension in the band. I mean, it was only a matter of time. Seriously. And there were complications. 1996 was poised to be a successful year for Heat Miser, as they were about to sign a contract with Virgin Records. Oh, shit. Which is a pretty big fucking deal. That is a big fucking deal. But before the ink on the contract was even dry, the band broke up. (gasps) What? (laughs) Elliot was preoccupied with his solo career, which meant Heat Miser was taking a back seat. 
Communication breakdowns led to tension. It was a difficult decision to break up Heatmiser, and there was definitely some resentment there, especially between to- Elliot and Tony, yeah. who didn't talk for years after the breakup. Yeah. But Elliot realized his own music was the path he really wanted to pursue. After Heatmiser's breakup, he put his nose to the grindstone and tirelessly worked on his next album called Either Or. The title came from Kierkegaard, a philosopher that dealt with themes of death and existential despair, which was right up Elliot's alley. Yeah. The philosophy major. This yeah. all checks. Yeah. This, was, this wasn't too far out of college. He was still into it. Exactly. He lost his job at a bakery around the same time the band broke up. So oh, he, no. So he went on unemployment and devoted an entire year to just recording. That's pretty awesome. I mean, if you can do it, fucking do it. God, if I didn't have to work a full-time job. Imagine all the... Po- so much room for activities. Oh my god, so much room for activities. <laughs> With all this time devoted to songwriting, Elliot's sound developed exponentially. He brought in producers Tom Rothrock and Rob Schnapf, Schnapf. Schnapf who are coming in hot after producing Beck's Odelay. Oh shit. Yeah. All right. With these guys on board and Elliot's intrin- intrinsic gloominess, the songs somehow meet in the middle. The album was still dark and sad, but was somehow light and accessible enough that you could sing along to it. All right. I think that's a pretty good description of Elliot's music overall. Yeah. Sad, but it's got a beat and you can dance to it. <sighs> I mean, I don't think it has a beat and you can dance you can't, to not it. At all. You can cry to it. The album was released on February 25th, 1997 to critical acclaim. It's still regarded by many to be the best album he ever made. Despite all the accolades, still no one knew who he was. Yeah, that's... Huh. Yeah. Hmm. Elliot never wanted to be a huge rock star, but he did want to play his music for as many people as possible. He wanted the success. Like, he wanted to be able to make a living off of what he was doing. Yeah, but he that didn't want to be successful, but he doesn't want to be a rock star. Yeah, he doesn't want to be in the limelight. He doesn't want to do the interviews. He doesn't want to, like, talk to people. He just wants to make his music... And he really wanted to Susie the Banshees, Susie and the Banshees, that shit where it's like, I'm just going to do what I'm going to do and leave me the fuck alone. Basically. All right. And this is where Elliot's mental health issues started to rear their ugly heads. He was on the road a lot, touring for either or, didn't take care of himself and drank heavily and often found himself alone and depressed. Fueled by an overconsumption of alcohol and antidepressant drug abuse, Elliot started falling into a deep depression. Yeah. I mean... I- I mean, yeah, I'm still a little like, huh, how do you, how do you abuse, you know, antidepressants, antidepressants. because some of them are narcotics, basically Uh... just prescribed narcotics. It's okay for you to take these narcotics because the doctor says, okay, I don't think this shouldn't be how it works, but that's how it works. Yeah, it's huh. kind of stupid. But you could see in his face that something was wrong, and it seemed like he aged like 10 years in only one year. Mm. He started making references to harming himself that alarmed his friends. Oh, yeah, as it should. He would call people in the middle of the night upset, and one time a friend of his, he, one time he sent a friend of his an email that basically said, if I ever do anything to harm myself, please don't be mad at me. Oh, is, no, it's like sad and terrifying. Very terrifying. Yeah. Obviously, alarm bells were ringing. At the end of the tour for either or, his friends staged an intervention that backfired spectacularly. 
I mean, really, with interventions, you get a 50-50 chance. Yeah, pretty much. You're, they're either going to, like, sit down and listen to you, but or they're going to get really mad at you and be like, fuck you, you don't know me. And he took the fuck you, you don't know me. I mean, I definitely have seen a bunch of episodes of that show Intervention, so I know exactly how this goes down. <laughs> I am an expert in interventions because I watched a TV show. <laughs> My favorite one was the chick who was huffing those spray cans to get the dust out of your keyboard. Oh my god. My favorite was the um, mother of like three kids who was an alcoholic and she would drink the mouthwash that they kept in their house because she they they took all of her alcohol away so she kept trying to drink the mouthwash. I mean, don't do it. Yeah, don't do it. All this did was make Elliot angry and resentful. Yeah. He took this as a serious betrayal by those he loved the most and was pissed that they even thought he had a problem. And that was probably a big factor in his decision to move again, this time to Brooklyn. Oh. He moved to New York City with literally nothing but a duffel bag of clothes. But he quickly made friends in the music industry. Which is surprising because I wouldn't... Well, it's not surprising, but I don't have high hopes for him doing well in New York City. Yeah. Because, you know... New York's a hard place to live, even when you are in the best of spirits. And that fucking place will run you down real quick if it can. I'm sure the 90s wasn't easy to live in Brooklyn, so. No. The 90s weren't a great time for New York City. No. No. He staked out a couple bars that he decided he liked, went to shows, and networked. Good for him. All right. He's getting out there. All right. like These are good signs. In the meantime, he started working on his next album called XO. Being in New York did him good in the sense that it got his creative juices flowing. However, the drug and alcohol abuse was also flowing. Yeah, New York City in the 90s. Mm. Mm. And then the worst possible thing that could happen to Elliot Smith happens. <sighs> Is it the worst possible thing that happens to every artist that we talk about? Heroin? Yep. No. Wow. The worst possible thing that could happen to oh, Elliot. Oh, so this is the worst possible thing that could specifically happen specifically to Elliot. to Elliot Smith. Got it. Okay. And that was, he got famous. Oh. Yeah. Gus Van Zant, native Portlander and director of iconic films like My Own Private Hi- Idaho, Milk, and Drugstore Cowboy. That's it. Yes. Heard Elliot's music and approached him to do music for his new film, Goodwill Hunting. <gasps> That's right. I forgot he did the music for that. Yeah. Elliot agreed, ultimately contributing three previously released tracks, an orchestral version of the song Between the Bars, and a new song called Miss Misery. Oh, As we all yeah. know, Goodwill Hunting went on to be immensely successful. And with that... He gave us stars like Matt Damon <laughs> and Ben, ben Affleck. Affleck. Our favorite, But also Robin Williams. He was always there. I'm just glad yeah. he was in there. And Minnie Driver, too. You know what? Yeah. I mean, like, it had its good points. Yeah. How about them apples? <laughs> yeah. How about them apples? How you like them apples? <laughs> Bitches. And with that success came a Best Original Song Oscar nomination <gasps> for Elliot. Oh, I didn't even really. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone kind of forgets about it. We'll get to that. To the reason why. In a little bit. Because he wanted us to. (laughs) So he was extremely hesitant about it. 
With the nomination comes the obligation to perform at <gasps> to perform the song at the Oscar ceremony. Oh. oh no! Which wasn't even something Elliot could comprehend. No, like I'm just picturing sweet little baby Elliot Smith just sitting yeah. there, like I, uh, it, I, I don't uh, know what to do. Uh, yeah, like what nervous do I do? As do, fuck. I, do I sit on stage? Do I stand on stage? How do I do this? Yeah. How do I look? What am yeah. I doing? He didn't even want to perform at the Oscars and no. only acquiesced when the producers told him that they'd find someone else to perform the song if he didn't. Oh, oh, that's kind of shitty. Yeah, but that's, yeah, I mean, they do it all the time. I, I'm kind of mad about that. I have seen Oscar ceremonies where people that did not write the songs or perform the songs that are nominated were performing the songs I at the ceremony. I never watch the Oscars, so I don't know. It's one of the few ones that I actually do watch. No, I don't like award shows. They just make me roll my eyes real hard. Oh, they're hot garbage, but I'm kind of here for it. So he put on a white suit, took his ex-girlfriend Joanna Bohm as his date, and went to the Oscars. Were they dating at the time? No. she was his ex at the time? Because he dated her while he was in Portland, and now Mm. he was in New York. So they broke up, and then, you know, then he moved to New York. He's probably like, I need a fucking date. Basically, please, I will pay for your plane ticket. I need a date. Yeah. They walked the red carpet, but they walked in right after Madonna. So (gasps) no one even cared that they were there. But that was probably perfect for him. Yeah. He was probably so, oh, I got it. That was strategic. He probably, like, somebody was probably like, if you don't want to get noticed, walk in after Madonna. Or Celine Dion. Mm, She was big in the 90s. Mm Mm-hmm. Actually, was that the same? Wait, okay, wait. Goodwill Hunting was 98? This was the 1998 Oscars. Yo, so that's Titanic. Yeah. Oh, we'll, shit. He's fine. We'll get there. Oh. Overall. Oh, I didn't know we were going Celine in this one. Overall, it was a surreal and uncomfortable evening, especially because backstage Celine Dion approached him and had a conversation with him and praised his work. I mean, hold on, though. For what it's worth, I'm sure Celine Dion is a peach. I would love to hang out I with Celine I am sure Dion. that like, she was nothing but cordial and lovely when she yes. went to talk to him. She seems like a very gracious lady with a butt-ton of manners. Yes. And a lovely oh. accent. Yeah, right? So, obviously, he did not win. This nope. was 1998, and you can probably take a guess as to what ship-themed movie dominated everything that year. I um really love the titanic soundtrack <laughs> i will admit my heart will go on as cheesy af now, oh yeah but yeah, when yeah. i was in eighth grade i lived and died by the titanic soundtrack your heart will go on it for did. the titanic soundtrack. oh it did i maybe i mean like yo those instrumentals are fucking killer i don't give a shit <laughs> fight me Despite the loss, fame was literally right around the corner for Elliot. I can't even imagine he was that upset to lose. No, I'm sure he probably He, he was wasn't. probably like, I guess I'm just happy to be here. I guess I'm just here. Yeah. I I'm- feel like he's never really happy, but I'm yeah. sure he was just there. I'm here, and that's enough. Yes. Yeah. Oh, Elliot Smith, I'm here, and <laughs> that's, that's enough. enough. Yeah. Oh. Within weeks of the Oscars, Elliot was signed to DreamWorks Records and Whoa. did a six-month world tour. Whoa. Twice around the world. <gasps> it was grueling and did nothing but fuel his appetite for drugs and alcohol. Oh. By now, Elliot had moved on to harder drugs. Ugh. Abusing pills, doing coke, 
and even crack were his drugs of choice. Mm -hmm. It was a full-blown drug and alcohol addiction, and he was now dropping subtle hints that he wasn't doing well at all. His world was getting dark, and depression was taking full control over his mental state. His friends and colleagues started distancing themselves from him because, as they put it, he was mean. Yeah. He was a fucking dick to his friends. I mean, when you're on that many drugs and you have this chemical imbalance that depression brings about, yeah, you, you're you not an easy person to deal with. And sometimes the way people express it is through just aggression and not being a nice person. Yeah. And I'm sure, like, the combination of alcohol and prescription drugs and hard drugs and, you know, his mental health issues. Yeah. It's going to make you just a fucking mad person, especially if you're still resentful to your friends. Right. If you think about the fact that they tried to intervention him and maybe he's always now walking on eggshells thinking, are they going to fucking have another intervention for me? Yeah. So. Yeah. Depression can definitely show itself in different ways. It doesn't always come out in this, woe is me, I'm so sad, I can't leave. Like. It's not just Aggression sulking. is actually um, a common way for especially men to exhibit depression. Yeah. Um, lashing out violently yeah. can be a sign of depression easily. So. Mm-hmm. There you go. There you go. I mean, even though it doesn't sound like he was violent, but I mean, you can still be. Yeah. Just mean and yeah. shitty. The friends that he didn't alienate continued to be there for him, even though he became more and more intolerable. They would find themselves staying up late with Elliot constantly, holding his hand and convincing him not to end his life. Oh, my God. On top of that, his subtle hints became openly talking about committing suicide. He even attempted suicide while in North Carolina, where he intentionally and very drunkenly walked off a cliff (gasps) while severely intoxicated. What the fuck? Yeah. Holy shit. Like a legit fucking cliff. He survived, obviously, but only because a tree impaled him and broke his fall. (gasps) Yeah. What the fuck? That is a very, very assertive way to be like, well, there you go. I'm ending it. Yeah. Wow. And when the police um, questioned him about it, he basically said, yeah, I walked off a cliff. I tried to kill myself. Can we talk about something else, please? Oh, my God. He refused to talk about it. the cops were probably like, mm, But no, no. No, that's not how this Sir, works. Sir, you're in the tank right now, and you're with the cops. You kind of have to do what we tell you to do. Yeah. We need more information on this. Yeah. A little bit. A little bit. Others just couldn't handle him anymore, like his manager who quit and never saw him again. She'd been with him for years, and she's like... I cannot tolerate this guy anymore. He's just mean. Yeah, it's hard. And it's very difficult to understand where somebody is coming from when their depression is released as anger. Yeah, I mean, it's hard enough. It's hard enough when somebody is... It's hard enough to be there for somebody who is just depressed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's... Severely depressed. It's doubly hard to be there for somebody who is that depressed and aggressive. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, while I understand um, why um, his friends weren't really sticking around, it it does suck. 
that yeah but he he was he knew he was alienating everybody and i mean sometimes you do stuff like that to almost prove to yourself see i am garbage no one wants to be around me it kind of justifies you like taking the self-harm route it's like you're thriving yeah in this self-hate kind of thing like oh nobody wants to be around me because i'm such a loser right and you thrive on that yeah 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 yeah. and i i yeah He'd also forget lyrics at shows and constantly start songs over again after oh fucking God. them up. Well, the drugs probably aren't helping. Yeah. Ooh-wee. All of it put together. And TBH, he was playing the diva card a lot. Yeah? He refused to play older songs because he didn't like them anymore. Huh. For instance, he was on a Dutch television show in 1998 where he played Waltz Number 2, Myths, Misery, and I Don't Understand. He played the latter two songs fine, but cut Waltz Number 2 off in the middle because, as he said, what's the point of playing a song badly? So he was fucking the songs up, but then he was like, well, I don't want to play this one anyway because it's boring and I've, I've lost interest in it. Uh, so whatever, I'm just I'm just going to either not play it or play something else. Okay. Yeah, I'm... Uh, yeah. Uh. He went back into the studio in 1999 to record his next album, Figure 8, which was released the next year. Again, it was well-received, and he embarked on an extensive tour to promote it. This was when he started using heroin regularly. And there it is, ladies and gentlemen, our good old friend. And boom goes the heroin. Boom goes the heroin. Every Fucking time. time. Ugh. Not coincidentally, this was also when Elliot first started showing signs of paranoia. Yeah. Oh, what? Yeah, we get paranoia, too. Oh, no way. He insisted on being dropped off yards away from the recording studio because he was convinced a white van was following him. He was also convinced that DreamWorks employees broke into his house and stole songs off of his computer. Oh, my God. Stop. He also stopped eating, living mainly on ice cream. Oh, he could have been friends with Axl Rose. Yeah, he really Axl rose it there. <laughs> <laughs> he tried to continue making music for a new album, going into the studio with John Bryan in 2001, but the shit hit the fan pretty early. The friendship between the two ended abruptly mm. when John Bryan, with John Bryan citing Elliot's drug use as the reason. Yeah, I mean, that's fair. Yeah. Yeah. Elliot was pissed and scrapped everything they had recorded up to that point. DreamWorks contacted Elliot in an effort to understand what went wrong with the recording sessions with John Bryan. Elliot essentially told him that they, the record company, were intruding on his personal life and accused them of poorly promoting figure eight. Okay. Hmm. After these talks, Elliot sent DreamWorks a letter threatening to commit suicide if they didn't release him from his contract. Oh my God. Did, did that work? Is that like... Something an artist can actually do. I mean, what are what's DreamWorks gonna do? Let him commit because, suicide because they're spineless, soulless bastards. I don't know if DreamWorks was they in that made kind of Shrek. position. <laughs> How would the company that hey, made like Shrek. Shrek? Shrek was good. Ever do that to anyone? <laughs> I mean, like, hey, now he was an all star. He got his game on to go Fuck play. Off. Fuck your fucking self. So why would Dream... You're right. DreamWorks, creators of Shrek, would ever do that. But hey, why can't we be friends? Why can't we be friends? What was... Oh, they did a monkey song, too. Oh, f- fucking... Now I'm a believer? I'm a believer. Okay, yeah, now I'm a believer. Yeah. 
Wait, did yep. Smash Mouth do that cover? Yes, they oh, did. They did. Oof a doof. Yep. Let's not talk about Smash Mouth anymore. We're done with Smash Mouth. <laughs> Dreamworks. Ugh. Elliot went back into the studio to re-record material for what would end up being his last album from a basement on the hill, recorded mostly by himself with some help from David McConnell. Was he was it recorded from a basement on a hill? I don't think so. Huh. I mean, at this point, he'd been trying to write and record music for this album like three times and kept scrapping it. So, yeah. Who the fuck knows where it was coming from at this point? That's fair. Heroin. Heroin. (laughs) Elliot's drug use continued to escalate and David claimed that Elliot was smoking $1,500 worth of heroin and crack a day. That's a lot. Way too much. Yeah. Like any is too much. But that's way too much. That's I where do you even put that all? Where do you put it all? In like your mouth, in your mouth apparently. or your nose or whatever? Your I don't butt? know. It's all up his butt. <laughs> yeah, it's suppositories, man. They go in the fastest. But like, do no, you... injections the fastest. Suppository is the second fastest. But like, do you put fifteen hundred dollars worth of heroin and crack like in a safe? Where do you put it? Your, I bet... your kitchen table. I bet he just kept it on the kitchen table. Oh, that's so gross. I mean, yeah, that's gonna get in your meats. Don't crack, let your crack meats. <laughs> crack meats. Oh my god! Get high on crack while you eating your meats. Give it a whole new meaning to the term smoked meats, am I right? Crack jerky. Waka waka. (laughs) Make some crack jerky. Oh my god, crack jerky. That might be fun. Hell of a way (laughs) to get addicted to smack, am I right? (laughs) If I'm going to do drugs, it's going to be through meat. He openly talked about killing himself now and even attempted to give himself an overdose several times. I, how is, how didn't he? I don't know. How didn't he? Because he kept getting saved by his friends who were actually fucking there for him. Ugh. And I mean, this is hard because, I don't know, the early 2000s, we're starting to get a better idea of mental health awareness, Mm -hmm. but it's nothing to what it is now, so... Imagine what he could have done if he had gotten the proper help, if that existed. I don't don't even know what that would have looked like. Well, let us continue. Yes, please. Uh, Meanwhile, with a bit of irony and foreshadowing, the song Needle in the Hay was featured in a very upsetting scene in Wes Anderson's movie The Royal Tenenbaums, where the character Richie attempts to commit suicide. Have you seen The Royal Tenenbaums? I have seen bits and pieces, and at this point, I think I've missed the boat. I, I don't think there's a boat to miss. I mean... So don't unless, even bother going. Unless you're, if you are disillusioned with Wes Anderson, as a lot of former fans are, I would say don't bother. I don't think I was ever illusioned by him. <laughs> I, to I, be disillusioned. I really liked him because The Royal Tenenbaums is a really good movie. I liked uh, The Fantastic Mr. Fox. And I think that was really it. Yeah. Um, he's a one trick pony. For sure. Oh, he is. 100%. But the first trick he did was the Royal Tenenbaums, and it was really, really good. So Elliot was supposed to contribute a cover of the Beatles' Hey Jude. Hmm, That would be pretty. It would have been great. But 
that idea was chucked when Elliot couldn't deliver on time because he was too fucked up on drugs. Oh, no. So instead, they just used needle in the hay, which honestly, really fucking effective. Okay. And just the irony of using that song in a scene where a character pretty brutally attempts to commit suicide. (sighs) All right. He never finished the album that he was working on during those sessions. Oh. And stopped, at this point, he stopped performing regularly. I mean, he was just too far gone at this point. Yeah, and the shows he did play were fucking horrible. He continued to forget lyrics and chords, and attendees said that they were the worst shows they'd ever seen, with one reviewer even calling it an excruciating nightmare. And, you know, that does beg the question, what point... Because he is a grown adult, you know, and he basically is in charge of his own care. But so at what point do his friends someone step say, in and be like, no, we're dragging you to a fucking mental institution yeah. and we will put you in there against your will? Yeah, but at, I don't even know if there are any that you can that's forcibly what I, make that's people That's what I mean. And sometimes it's like, it's like... That's and such even, a fucking that's such a fucking weird line. Yeah. And even if you can force somebody to go to a rehab center, I believe they always have the option of signing themselves out. They do. So um, how effective would it be? I mean, yeah. I, ugh. But just like he clearly was so gone and not caring for himself. Yeah, he he did not want to live anymore. He was only doing it I like performing and stuff because it's all he knew what to do. And right. maybe it was the only way he could make any money at this yeah, point. Oh, I'm sure. So who what knows? What else is he going to do? Yeah. Then on November 25th, 2002, outside of a Flaming Lips and Beck show in L.A., because hmm. he was friends with Wayne Coyne. Good friends with Wayne Coyne. Ugh. Elliot was arrested. You know, out of all the choices that Elliot Smith has made, I'm saying that's the worst one. <laughs> Is being friends with the flaming lips. Yeah, yeah. you know what? Like the heroin, not great. You know what's worse? Being friends with the flaming lips. Yeah. Put the two together, disaster. Yeah. But outside of this show, Elliot was arrested after instigating a fight with the fucking Los Angeles Police Department. No, what are you doing? Yeah. What are you doing? Yeah, he claimed he was defending someone he thought the police were harassing. Okay. But you were also high. Yeah, and Mm. probably drunk. His back was injured in the fight, which caused him to cancel several shows. This must have been... he would have canceled anyway. Yeah. (laughs) This must have been some kind of turning point for him, because the same year he entered a rehab facility. Or it could have been court-ordered. I'm going to go with it's court-ordered. Yeah, I'm not disagreeing with your assessment. Because he was arrested. He was drunk and high when he was arrested guaranteed part of his probation or whatever he got his friends were probably like we should just call the cops the whole time could have just called the cops the whole time well now you know you learn you live you learn yeah so he went to kind of a different kind of rehab Mm -hmm. he went to the neuro neurotransmitter restoration center in beverly hills for treatment which is apparently you know, instead of a 12-step program, they hook you up to an IV filled with amino acids and saline. Okay. And let you kind of ride out the withdrawal. 
Okay, I mean that's there. There is some science behind that. Yeah, they like they let you ride it out, but make sure you aren't dehydrated, right? And that you're still, you know, healthy and going on the right path, so you can withdraw naturally. Experience that garbage that is withdrawal. Yeah, I mean, like you got to make sure, like here's withdrawal. You don't want to have to go through this again, do you? Yeah, great. Yeah. Good. Here is the trauma of having to go through this shit. So do you really want to have to do it again? No, didn't then think don't so. don't touch heroin again. Don't fucking do it again. Stop it. Yeah. Now clean, he played a series of sold out shows in LA in early 2003 oh. in an attempt to regain some credibility. Not only was Elliot free from drugs now, but on his 34th birthday in August 2003, he vowed to give up alcohol too. Oh, okay. Along with red meat, caffeine, sugar, and all of his psych, psych meds. So no crack meats. No crack meats. Oh, okay. No, wow. No psych meds. Nothing. I support this. However, I don't support doing it all at once. Yeah, you gotta, like, you gotta do, it's a slow burn, my friend. One at a time is fine. You don't yeah. have to do it all at once. And I yeah. think that was kind of a mistake. But somehow he seemed to be picking himself up by the bootstraps and getting better. All right. He started making music again, working on songs for the Thumbsucker soundtrack, and learning how to create music on computers. Ooh. Because this was when computers were... Oh, I got GarageBand! Like, exactly! I'm going to see how this works! He had his girlfriend's iMac, and he started using GarageBand. Well, there you go! Yeah. That's adorable. He reconnected with old friends in an attempt to apologize and mend some burnt bridges. A couple years previously, he had started a long-term relationship with Jennifer Chiba, a musician known for her band Happy Ending mm. and for also dating Rivers Cuomo for a while in the early 90s. Who's Rivers Cuomo? The front guy for Weezer. Oh, right. <laughs> the weird fucking idiot from Weezer. I mean, just like, that's that's what I know him as. I don't yeah. know him as Rivers yeah. Cuomo. Oh, I'm going to get a lot of fucking flack from <laughs> fucking Weezer fans. We get flack from Flaming Lips fans. I am going to get crucified by Weezer fans. It's fine. I mean, is it? I've lost a lot of respect for Rivers Cuomo in the last decade or so, so it's fine. Look, we can't we can't begrudge Come both Flaming me. Lips and Weezer in the same. Well, episode. we're going, My we're God. going there, we're doing it, we're on that fucking train. It's happening. Well, Buckle up. This was the last episode of Rock Candy Podcast. <laughs> I hope you guys enjoyed it. But you know, things appear to be going well for the two of them. Yeah, but his friends noticed that something was wrong. Even though he was being more social, there was something fragile and disconnected about his personality. Could it have been giving up a lot of shit at the same time? And, like, maybe that's a bit of, like, a jumpstart to your life that you weren't quite ready for. Yeah. And also, you know, just going off all of your meds all Not, at once yeah, probably like, wasn't a good idea. It's a slow burn, dude. Like, you have to, like, slowly dose down and then, like, slowly come off. Yeah. You can't just stop. I mean, I know people that have done that. And they're all the better for it. But... Oh, slowly dosed down and then stopped? Or like no, just cold, cold turkey. turkey. Oh. Yeah. Oh. Um, and they've, they fucking did it and they're so much better for it. Okay. But I'm sure it's not advisable. Yeah, you should definitely slowly dose out of it. Yeah. Someone like Elliot Smith should, should dose slowly out <laughs> dose out of it. Yeah. Cold turkey is probably not the best. Also, therapy? Go yeah. to a therapist while you're doing this. That, that could have been a good idea. That could have been a great idea. So around this time, he also received a letter from Stepdad Charlie. Oh, fuck that guy. Stepdad Charlie. Stepdad Charlie. 
It's like hot dog Charlie's, but not nearly as delicious. But still, whole lot of wiener. Ah, but it is though. Yeah. (laughs) In the letter, Charlie apologized for being a terrible father. Okay. He said he knew the way he raised Elliot was wrong, and he's learned from it. To everyone on the outside, it seemed like the letter gave Elliot some closure, but I personally don't think that that's the case. I think maybe he wanted people to think it gave him closure, but I think it just drummed up a whole lot of fucking memories he tried really hard to suppress. I think it did that. And I think that when you are a child of some kind of abuse, whether it's emotional, physical, sexual, Mm -hmm. and like the parent apologizes it's like an entire new thing that you have to deal with. Because it's like, oh, cool, you apologized and now you feel good. Well, guess what? I still have all these feelings of, like, years of shit that you gave me yeah. that I don't know how to deal with. Fuck you. These, Great, you feel good. These are not apologizable right. actions. Right. These are not things you can just say, I'm sorry, and expect everything to be okay. Right. No. no. This isn't like, I'm sorry I stole your shirt that one time. Here it is. I'm giving it back to you. We're good. Right. That's not how this works. No. This is, I fucking ruined your life. I've like clearly destroyed your psyche. I have destroyed a part of you that you can never build up again and has essentially ruined your life and made you careen into alcoholism and drug abuse and has ruined your your physical and mental health but i'm sorry i'm sorry is that good enough no it's not fucking good enough but you've I'm ruined sorry. somebody's life but i'm sorry and not only did you ruin that person's life but you made it extremely difficult for all of their friends and other family members to connect to them in a way that matters yep so fuck you and your fucking apology. Yeah. Done. We're fuck done you. here. Fuck you, Hot Dog Charlie. I'm sick of you. <laughs> he doesn't deserve the title Hot Dog Charlie. He's just Stepdad Charlie. He's Stepdad Charlie. Not stepdad call- Wiener Charlie. Not calling him dad. But by now, in mid-2003, Elliot was home from touring, resting in his home he shared with Jennifer Chiba in Echo Lake, a neighborhood in Los Angeles, and was a few mi- few months sober, which apparently I'm not. everyone was convinced he was on the up and up and that his mental state was improving that's why it was such a shock to everyone to learn that on october 21st 2003 elliot committed suicide by stabbing himself in the chest oh yeah the story seemed pretty cut and dry jennifer and elliot had gotten into an argument elliot threatened to kill himself but jennifer ignored his threats locked herself in a bathroom and took a shower she heard a scream And when she came out of the bathroom, she saw Elliot standing in front of her with a knife sticking out of his chest. She pulled the knife out. He collapsed on the floor and she called 911. Just over an hour later at 1.36 a.m., Elliot died of his wounds. Elliot left what might be a suicide note on a post-it, which read, I'm so sorry. Love, Elliot. God forgive me. However... This might not be the end of the story. There's some... There's some shit. I mean, there is some speculation. There's some conspiracy theories. There are, though. Like, I know this story better than I know his music. Yeah. 
I know like three or four of his songs. Yeah. <laughs> I know this fucking story though. Cause true crime. Right. Exactly. Now it's time for something completely different. <laughs> Although Elliot's friends and family were told he committed suicide and Jennifer Chiba insists that he did, there is a pervasive rumor that Elliot was actually murdered. Yes. By who? Jennifer? Not not really sure. However, the evidence is somewhat compelling. First, there were two stab wounds in Elliot's chest. Right. The first entered his chest cavity and the second perforated his heart. Stabbing yourself in the chest is one of the most painful ways to commit suicide. And very difficult. Yes. It is not an easy thing to do. Right. The idea that Elliot stabbed himself, then pulled the knife out and stabbed himself again is almost impossible to believe. Right. There were also no hesitation marks found on his body. Usually in self-inflicted stab wounds, you will see these marks where the person causes flesh wounds as they work up the courage to plunge the knife all the way in. Right. He didn't have any of those. He just went straight in. Two straight No marks. hesitation, no surrender, no man left behind. Right. Also consider that there were no illegal substances found in Elliot's blood. Mm-hmm. Aside from prescribed medications, Elliot was sober at the time of his death. So a sober person doing that to themselves is a bit hard to believe, unless he just wanted to be really dramatic about it. Which I guess you could make the argument for. You could make the argument for that. Because of all of this, and the fact that Jennifer wasn't cooperating with the investigation, the coroner that performed Elliot's autopsy wrote undetermined as a cause of death. Oh, shit. So that it didn't rule out homicide. Shit. Even the coroner's like... "Mm." But as far as I can tell, they didn't really do a whole big investigation into it. They kind of just like left it. Well, doesn't it get kind of it gets kind of difficult because you if you don't have any proof, if you have absolutely zero evidence, you can't actually dig that deep into it. Right. And there were a lot of people that pointed the finger at Jennifer Chiba in a striking similarity to Courtney Love when Kurt Cobain committed suicide. Mm. Yeah. Now I need some motivation. Yeah. She was the only witness to the act, and conveniently, she was in the shower when it happened. There's no one else that can corroborate her version of events. Right. But there's also no one that can disprove it. Also, she pulled the knife out. Yeah. So it would make sense why, if she says that part of the story, why her fingerprints would be on the knife. Exactly. But also, why would you pull... I wouldn't pull it out. I wouldn't pull it out. Don't touch them. Yeah, don't touch them. Because you know, like, when you pull something, like, if somebody's blood. mortally wounded... Blood. all over. Not that's just blood, blood all over, but, like, out. that's probably the only thing keeping him alive at that point. Right. Is the fact because that it's, it's there. stopping most of the blood from coming out of the wound. Right. I mean, he's dead no matter what, it sounds like. Right. But... Yeah. Don't pull it out. I wouldn't pull it out. Like, that's the last this thing This is I the do. one time you don't pull out. I'm not pointing fingers at her whatsoever because there's no proof at all that she had a hand in Elliot's death. Right. I mean, like, is there any motivation? Right. But you can't help but wonder, considering how litigious she's become post-suicide. In July 2004, Jennifer sued Elliot's family for $1 million. What? For breach of contract. What? What? Essentially, Jennifer argued that while Elliot was alive, they entered a verbal contract. 
This contract said that they were to live as husband and wife and combine their earnings. Elliot would provide 100% financial support for Jennifer for the rest of her life in exchange for doing housework and managing his music career. I call bullshit. Also, suspicious. Sus. Suspicious. Hashtag sus. <laughs> Hashtag vicious. <laughs> Slightly, right? She did it. You've convinced she fucking me. Did she it. fucking did it. <laughs> we are not a true crime podcast, but this is quickly delved into one. Yeah. And then, the well, the lawsuit dragged on for three years until it was thrown out and Jennifer was not awarded a single dime. Yup. No. But then, a year later, she sued her lawyer accusing him of attempting to gain control over Elliot's master tapes and exploiting Elliot's name for monetary gain. In the same lawsuit, she again railed against Elliot's family, accusing his stepmother of trying to whitewash Elliot's history. And like, she was accusing her, she was accusing Elliot's stepmother of trying to like, like just get her, get Jennifer out of the story. Yeah. And make it seem like, you know, Elliot wasn't that depressed and, no, you know, the suicide. No, his stepmother was-, was a baby boomer and baby boomers don't ever acknowledge that their family have depression and, like, shit goes wrong. Nobody likes to, like, no middle class white family likes to admit that there's ever anything but wrong with their family. his family didn't say anything about shit at all. After he died. Okay. They made no statements. They didn't do interviews. Yeah. They didn't make public comments. Nothing. But that, I, I think that checks, you know, like you just sweep it under the rug. Yeah. It just sounds like a middle class white person thing yeah. to fucking do. It's, it's the family's deal and they're going to deal with it on their own. Right. But in the meantime, Jennifer Chiba is putting all these lawsuits together and trying to make it seem like Elliot's family is trying to... Just wipe away all the dirty stuff of his story and just make it seem like, oh, he was just a deep thinker and a very emotional guy and, you know, whatever. Depression. It sucks. But, oh, his music's really good. But they weren't at all. They didn't do any of that. And his entire story is out there for everybody to listen to and learn from and everything. They didn't try to, to cover up anything. And they weren't even accusing her of having any hand in his death at all. They, they were basically doing nothing. They were just kind of, yeah. we're just going to float on. We're going to do our thing. And it's really, like, we need to grieve about what happened to our fucking son. Exactly. Yeah. Like, I would, I would leave him alone. It's not like. So it's kind of like her accusations really came out of left field. Hashtag sus. <laughs> Hashtag picious. <laughs> But seriously, she did it. <laughs> wow. This story took a real fucking right hand turn a, at the end. It took a dark turn. <laughs> a really fucking like, oh, mental health awareness is really important. But murder. But murder. And I, I fucking think she did it. It's, oh, I don't know. I think she is an extremely greedy person who certainly exploited She's his, not a good person. His death. Um, so are you trying to put her more in the Courtney Love camp of probably didn't do it, but definitely took advantage of it? Yeah. I think she did it. Yeah. That's too sus for me. I can't. Too sus. Too suspicious. <laughs> too sus, too suspicious. 
<laughs> I can't. She fuck. I wow. That's so fucked. Yeah, it's a like I really want to like you know talk about his music and how his mental health really. But, but you're like, still I'm reeling from this murder really, shit. But like this murder she did. <laughs> yeah, murder she did. Yeah, at the very least, it's murder she coulda. Murder she probably did. Murder she coulda. <laughs> murder. Yeah, that probably fucking happened. <laughs> I guess there is like a chance. Maybe I mean the kid did walk off a fucking cliff. He was dry, right. drunk and high as fuck, but... But there could be an argument for um, she was an opportunist mm. and saw that he was in a very bad spot and right. was already suicidal. So why not take up a, a long-term relationship with him and then, you know, eventually See, he'll oh. probably do it and... Ugh take advantage of it because honestly i've seen that personally it has happened it's like because we talked about how he really dealt with his depression in a more aggressive way than most people normally do or Mm -hmm. what most people expect but he's still vulnerable there is a vulnerability with people with depression and anxiety you know sometimes i think with other things like bipolar schizophrenia or multiple personality Mm -hmm. there's such like a, a wild card i guess aspect to it that it's harder to control. Yeah. But you can control a person with depression pretty easily. Yeah. Especially if they rely on you and they count on you. Like, if they're going to be in a relationship yeah. with you. And they, they, so they rely on you. And clearly, he did rely on her. Yeah. Because the first lawsuit that she filed basically said he relied on her for housework, for managerial But we could also and call bullshit the- on that. Yeah. And I, I would like to, um, but, but, but mainly because I think she's a murderer. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I just, he, um, that's the thing with people with depression and anxiety. You need to, you need to have good people in your life because if you don't, there are people who can You either, need to have le- level-headed people in your life. Who, yeah, who are going to be like your get-a-grip friends. Yep. They're going to be the people who are going to not take advantage of you when you are right. at a bad place. When you surround yourself with someone who sees that you are a person dealing with a lot of depression in a high place and you're making a lot of money, mm-hmm. you know, we've seen this story in a much more famous story where I'm going to take advantage of this. Yeah. So, and yeah, I guess especially too, because he wasn't using and he seemed, I mean, I'm sure he still has shit he was dealing with. Who knows? But to have a fight with your significant other and to use that, I mean, there's always that final straw, but but also there's this thing with people who are heavy drug users where people that die from overdoses usually die right after they've been sober for a while. That's true. And it's that first hit that their bodies can't handle it. Yeah. And they overdose very easily. Yeah, and I mean, like, depression, you never know which attempt is going to be the one that does you in. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's just a sad story, and it sucks. He does make, he did make beautiful music, and it is, you have to wonder, like, with some therapy and a little bit better treatments that we have, even only 15 years later. Yeah. Like, what could have maybe happened? And what kind of music could he have made in the meantime? Because he was more than willing to be experimental. Right. And 
you know, do something completely different. And maybe he could have won an Oscar. He could have. I don't think he would have wanted to. And no, he honestly, I don't want him to. I wouldn't have wanted him to be he nominated for another one. He doesn't want this attention, guys. He's just, he's just here and that's enough. Yeah. And these days he, he could have been an under the radar success. Yeah. There's been so many of them. Yeah. It's, it's too bad. I mean, yeah, especially nowadays with stuff like Spotify, mm-hmm. where you can be famous, but you can also be famous on your own terms. Yeah. But also Band that camp, whole, like, or, you know, all that stuff. That whole, like, underground indie movement that came not long, not long after, after. Probably, like, five or six years after like, he died. the whole Saddle Creek thing and Bright Eyes and yeah. Rilo Kiley oh, yeah. and all of them. Like, he would have fit into that so Perfectly. fucking well. And he was friends with a lot of those guys. Yeah. He could have been a part of that that secret indie boom that happened. You know who probably killed him? The what? Flaming Lips. <laughs> Fucking Flaming Lips. I bet it was them. Ugh. I bet that's what happened. It was... Let's go arrest them. Because we have to arrest them for something. Please. We don't. We we're grabbing at straws here. We, we really just... are. We really are. <laughs> we just need something to arrest them for. If so. you didn't already stop listening, because we've ragged on both the Flaming Lips <laughs> and Weezer, you have now. I mean, there there's got to be something. There's got to be something. Excessive use of confetti. I don't know. I I'd, I'd arrest them for that. Yeah, I I think that's a perfect. I'd thing arrest, to arrest them for, for all style, no substance. Ooh, fight me. I guess a peanut here, all style, no substance. <laughs> and with that, I think uh, I think we can put a little bow on poor Elliot Smith's story. But I think uh, we should before we end up curled up in the fetal position under our desk. But hey, you know what? If you got a friend who suffers from depression, just give them a hug, even if they just yell at you. Even fucking if, check in on them. Check in on them. And if they're aggressive, we all have friends who suffer from depression. And if they're aggressive about it, just know that it's the depression. It's not them. Yeah. They love you. Stick with them. They don't just... don't prove their depression right. Yeah. Don't. Just stick with them and be like, I'm gonna love and tolerate the shit out of you. Yeah. And there you go. That's what you should do. Thank you all for listening. We appreciate you. And if you appreciate us, why don't you go on iTunes, give us a five star review, tell us how great we are, because we're great and you should tell us that. Because I mean if you've already listened through this much, you must like us enough. Yeah. Go. I mean, we do drop a lot of F bombs. So you know what? We appreciate that you appreciate our F bombs. <laughs> Thank you. And, uh, you know, you can also go check out our website, www.rockcandypodcast.com. And there you can comment on episodes, send us an email, visit the social meds, the Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. We got all of that shit. And we post stupid pictures and say silly things. And it's good times. And we'll have conversations about stupid shit with you. It's fun. It is fun. I like all of the comments we got we get on social media. And if you dig us, then you should probably check out Pantheon Podcasts, which is the network that we're on now. Hell yeah. They have a whole bunch of wonderful shows. Mm-hmm. If you like us, you'll like them. Yeah. So check them on out. And I mean, I'd, I'd argue, like, if you like us, but you wish, like, maybe we were adults, <laughs> then you're definitely going <laughs> to like what's on Pantheon. Yeah. Because I'm pretty sure, like... We're like the middle schoolers of the Pantheon Podcast Network. We're the 13-year-old boys of the Pantheon like, Network. Like, we make dick jokes and say fuck a lot. Yeah. But everyone else on the network's, like, really mature and an adult, and it's really impressive. Yeah. What is that like? <laughs> and next week will be our last episode of Mental Health Awareness Month. We'll be, we'll be bringing it back a little old school. 
it'll be arguably it'll be something that we haven't done in a six months. Yeah, for real. Because we need a break. We need a break. Holy it's fuck, we need a break. I don't know. This might this it still might be a lot though. Yeah, it's still gonna be a lot, it's but a lot. at least it'll be a little more lighthearted. Yeah, yeah, a little bit more. As you can tell from my face, I'm not very sure We're about not that. Sure. We're gonna find I'm not out. Sure. We're gonna fucking find out though. Yep. So we'll see you kids next week, and until then, party on, Ashley. Party on, Maggie. And party on, you crazy kids out there. Balls out. Mm, thank you. Thank you. With Progressive's Name Your Price tool, you can find options that fit your budget. Because giving you options is the right thing to do. Oh, yeah, like when I hold the door for someone. Sure, it may be weird if I don't time it right, and they're a little too far away, and oh, now they're running. And we're both asking ourselves, is it worth it to run instead of just, you know, letting them open their own door? But still, it's the right thing to do. So get options based on your needs with Progressive's Name Your Price tool. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and third-party insurers. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. By now, you know that sound. It's the sound of the Home Depot. But what about those sounds? Those are the sounds of an LG wash tower with ultra-large capacity, serving up a powerful yet gentle clean in just 29 minutes. Making this the sound of savings on the best appliance brands. The Home Depot. How doers get more done. Get up to 25% off the LG wash tower with ultra-large capacity and reduced wash time. Pricing valid January 5th through January 25th, 2023. Gas dryer extra. U.S. only. See store online for details. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.